Welcome to the Classical Happy Hour. I'm your host, Martin Davids. This is the show where my guests and I talk about music while enjoying a tasty beverage. Then we try to play some music together. Today's guest is Ruben Dubrovsky. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Well, still um, very happy and very tired after yesterday's concert. Me too. I feel like the only way I was going to touch a violin today was on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about your first musical experiences, how you became a musician. I am born in a family where music was very much at home, but two very different kind of music considering the origin of my parents. My mother um, is born in Buenos Aires and she learned to play piano when she was young and she became a pianist. So that's the classical influence in my life. And from the other side, my father was born in the middle of, really in the, in the countryside in Argentina, in Santa Fe. Not to confuse with Santa Fe or however you call it. <laughs> Santa Fe. Santa Fe. <laughs> so Santa Fe, Argentina. And um, he uh, there grew up listening and dancing even to Argentinian folk music, to traditional music. And that was indeed the first music I learned to play. And for many years, that was like the music in my life. So what kind of instrument were you playing? The first instrument I played is a little guitar, like the Argentinian or even Bolivian version of what here would be the ukulele. And like the ukulele and like many other instruments in South America, it has a Baroque origin, but of course I didn't know that at that time. It's an instrument with uh, five double courses, quite little, and the back of it uh, made of an armadillo. And uh, I still have that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Even if today we do it, we do them out of wood, of course, for conservationist <laughs> thoughts. But it, that does sound great with the with the little animal. I have to have to say. Wow, yeah, I've never seen one made out of an armadillo. Oh, I should bring it one day, but I risk that you know at the border that they don't allow me. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to lose that. So, you didn't stay limiting yourself to those instruments, though. You you tried some other things. Exactly, and the interesting thing of playing folk music, especially when you start playing in a band, is that um, it can happen, doesn't have to, but it can happen that you end up playing many different instruments. So after the charango, which was mine, I learned to play the guitar. And then I, when I was 15, I came into this folk music band, traditional music. And then I slowly started playing many other instruments. From the string instruments, I learned to play the mandolin, but then there was also some percussion to play. So I played many percussion instruments and then even wind instruments from the old and region, like um, pan uh, flutes. You and play the pan flute? Oh, yeah. But not like uh, this solo pan Zamfir. flute. No, it's not, not <laughs> quite that. 
but the pan flute played in South America is played traditionally in a very nice way, which is um, the, the scale is shared between two players. So if you and me were playing the pan flute, I have the C, you have the D of the scale, I have the E, etc. And people play that, but not only two, but a whole village. <laughs> so it's like handbell choir based with exactly. pan flutes? quite that but um, there are basically people playing the left side and the right side of it in several octaves or playing fourth or fifth parallel but really like 20 30 or more people and with percussion because it's music to be played outside you know in the mountains so you really need to 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 make some sound and that was my my beginning and um, you know, I, I then started playing cello, and that is when music got like serious. But actually, that early experience of trying to adapt very early to different instruments became then very important in my life. And also, we were playing music, uh, trying to get the particular style of every little village in the region. And, you know, the mountains separate people so much that the accent they speak is different and the music too. And trying to get that original sound has a lot to do then when you start playing Baroque music and try to reimagine what would be the original sound of Napoli Baroque or of French Baroque. It was really very mind-opening. Wow, so you, you went like from village to village learning their music um, we used like Bartok or something yes no well um, the advantage tape is recorder exactly no they actually yes but um, I was quite young so the, the older guys were doing that kind of work but also you know there were there are many like LPs uh, that we were using to reconstruct this because people were doing that work of reg uh, registering the, the the music of the uh, different villages. Saving it. Saving it, and, and people would buy those recordings because it was their music. No, it was not only just to for a museum. That is the music they found good and cool. So yes, that's that for my beginnings. I'm just trying to imagine, you know, 20 people playing the pan flutes. It sounds well, pretty cool. So they have giant ones. Yes, they are called hachasiku, and they are like almost as tall as a person the, the bigger like ones like a didgeridoo yes and, but in you know being young and ambitious I was like okay giving a lot of air into that and then after three or four notes your head gets really dizzy because you are <laughs> hyperventilating plus you're in the mountains probably right <laughs> yes and you know that people in the mountains have really like their lungs were different because there is not so much oxygen so it's like, reminds me when the Argentinian um, soccer uh, team needs to go to Bolivia, to La Paz, at 4,000 meters of uh, altitude to play, they can't run, man, <laughs> after five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> it's tough, yeah. So, you know, how did that lead to you becoming a conductor? Well, the... I feel like there are some missing steps here. Yes, actually, yes. Um, in that band, I have to say, very soon I became like the guy 
first of all, writing down the music because I was the one who could write and read music and listening to the recordings and trying to understand the arrangements as precisely as possible. Not always easy from a bad recorded LP, but that was really very much fun. And then when I was around 15, I started playing the cello. And that was, of course, then my path to classical music. And I very much wanted to, yes, to become a professional musician of that, and especially like string quartet was kind of my my goal. No, I, I playing like Beethoven string quartet or or. Even you mentioned Bartok, Bartok string quartet. That's the thing I wanted to do. So I came then or went to Germany to study cello. And there was something in every chamber music group that I played. I was like the guy with the score in the hand and trying to figure out how we rehearse. I really always had a passion for understanding the, the dynamic in a group, what makes you work well. And always for understanding the score and that went very naturally into then what was my first leading uh, baroque ensemble from the cello and then eventually standing up and conducting. So I've, I've talked to a number of conductors and many of them just sort of fell into conducting you know like one guy was playing harpsichord in these baroque orchestras and he ended up just moving to the front, or the, they asked him to lead some things, or she, and uh, he ended up just taking over. Mm-hmm. And so, did you did you study conducting, or did you just sort of take over like some of these other people? Um, I had the experience while playing, um, especially in baroque groups. Um, very often, I was myself playing under the conductors that didn't study conductor. They were just trying to do it. And I never enjoyed that. So when I decided that I really wanted to conduct, I didn't want to use the goodwill of my colleagues for learning that. So I really studied conducting for a long period. And then actually when I I started conducting orchestras, I didn't want to conduct first my Vienna Bach consort and my, my friends. And actually I started conducting a normal symphonic repertoire. My first project was with a dance company where we did Stravinsky and Mendelssohn and then Shostakovich, Arvo Pert and different stuff. And then I got hired for conducting operas in a real opera theater. And actually, it was quite a long time until I decided, okay, now I want to come back to my group and conduct this group. Until now, I was really leading from the cello. And uh, I have to say, for me, it was a very liberating moment. Even if I love playing the cello, and I especially love playing continuo. But the way I work, it helped me a lot to get um, my hands free of the instrument which forces you to build a good deal in real time with what you are doing and start conducting being able to be ahead of what is happening always preparing 
So you fired your cellist. <laughs> Basically, I chose someone who was able to do it better than me, and that was very good. <laughs> yeah, at the beginning, I have to say, of course, when you come from an instrument, uh, you have such a clear idea of what you want to happen, especially like in the continual line, that even until today, I feel very much when I'm conducting, I am conducting that line and shaping it the, the way I feel like it should be. But from the other time, like in yesterday's concert, when you have someone like in this case, uh, Anna Steinhoff, who really I have the, the feeling I only need to think something and she's already reacting and doing it. And probably very often, if I even didn't do anything, she would anyway do it that way. That's very, very liberating, yes, because then I can take care of other things, of the general atmosphere, instead of micromanaging the continual line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think whatever you, instrument you come from, you tend to focus on that a little bit more, probably, when in what you hear. And uh, in Baroque music, the bass line is such a big part of it, the continual part. It is. And... Um, Actually, taking care of the violins is um, something which is developing in another direction in the last year of my life, uh, probably in, in the last, yeah. I mean, I always took care about how it should sound, but now like, I have a different understanding because it is very different than playing the cello. And um, I think that what helped me a lot for understanding violins is working with singers because until some time ago my working with an orchestra I was taking a lot of care of the bass and a lot of uh, care of the middle voices I loved working with violas and second violins and some things and with the people playing the melody I kind of let them the freedom to do but that's not how it works when you have a section. You really need some, some leading. So, yes, the, now I, I feel like something has changed in my mind thanks to this opera work that I do in trying to understand uh, a violin section really like, like a singer. And that's changed very much the conducting. Yeah, it's so often the first violins have, you know, double the the vocal line so and they also introduce the vocal melody yes and it's very much about shaping the sound of that section because uh, being the melody you really need it to to have a voice yes and to have a melody shape without ever losing your voice is something that singers know very much that's their business and we instrumentalists sometimes tend to serve so much the dynamic that we may do a diminuendo and yes lose the intensity of our sound and if we play pianissimo a singer uh, a pianissimo needs a lot of physical energy you know, to do that and, and for us, uh, string players, in this case, uh, is a big, big inspiration. So what do you think a conductor's job is? 
<laughs> I think that um, th there are two different uh, jobs and you need to do both at the same time. One is really like every interpreter, like uh, understanding the music as banal as it sounds um, is really trying to have an idea of how every note should sound and that begins with understand why is this note written there and not another one or why is the phrase this long and not like this really understand the why of the music instead of just obeying what's written and then yes you become like the the interpreter like the lawyer of the composer <laughs> yes really and trying to to explain people what what is there because the paper is just uh, uh it's uh, like stenography it's like some signs giving us some of the parameters so i think that having as deep as possible an understanding of the music by this composer or by this region or by this age and all of that together and then make it your own that's the one job and the second one is um, shaping this very unhomogeneous bunch of musicians uh, unhomogeneous because first of all the instruments are so different and the needs from a harpsichord or from a double bass or a violin are so different and then you have winds and then you have singers if so having um, a concept of how to make that really work together and some uh, sections may need like adjusting in order to work in this whole and then the whole orchestra needs and a shaping and of course the, that's a very um, very beautiful work and a very personal and I think that there are not two conductors who would get the same sound out of the same people just with the first downbeat but especially when you start phrasing and when you start talking and explaining which is also part of the job is, is really shaping shaping a sound and you still are working with people who have an own will, own ideas, own ar artistry. So it's uh, finding this balance between what you want there to happen, but then they are playing. You are not playing. Yes, it's like if you you can coach a basketball team, but then they are playing out there. Yes, I'm not producing any sound. So um, that is the work I think okay yeah I mean no two singers sing the same song the same way no if you put the same violin into people's hands it sounds different and even when people are around different groups of people they become a different person absolutely and I think that's one of the fascinating things um, like in our case here in Chicago, Third Coast Baroque, and that's almost everywhere in the freelancing scene, the same players 
meet each other under different flags. Yes, and every group is going to sound different because there are other priorities there. And I think that um, is fascinating and it gives a lot of responsibility to the guy contacting because then you get these players and of course they offer you what's the like the normal standard they work with and then as a conductor your job is to bring that in a direction that you think is how it you, it should be for your taste or for your ideas and I always um, uh, yes feel like uh, players have the right to be offered of that ideas like stage directors need to tell actors or opera singers how is the staging going to be and not say okay you guys do it just live from what these people are offering I don't think that's fair but at the same time of course everybody has a talent an, an idea a character a, a, a personal musical vision especially if you really know the piece and that's uh, I think very important for a conductor for me if I work with people who have an own vision it's much more re uh, rewarding than it's if it's only my ideas which are put into place yeah I mean I, I, I don't remember too many times when I've disagreed with your ideas but I, I do feel like you're definitely open to be convinced of a musical idea and that's nice you know there is um, always um, always a lot to learn from your colleagues and um, I very often especially in these uh, big um, symphonic orchestras or theater orchestras I always encourage everyone even the last people in a section to have an opinion because like in the german orchestras i work very much okay the concertmeister may say something to me but the guy sitting behind him to talk and to say could we or i think that that usually never happened and i think it is important to acknowledge that everybody sitting there has really something to offer and of course the first way of offering is with your instrument but if you really have something to say it is so so good to be able to say it and it's for me so so important to listen to that and then of course you have a soloist like yesterday with Vivica Genot amazing artist uh, with such a such an instinct and experience and both of that thing make her contributions so important and then sometimes she may say something that maybe it wasn't exactly my idea but I see that uh, I'm thinking of a particular passage like we had four equal quarters left to play tong 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 mm. and she said let's play tong tong tara and I would never have thought that and I would have reasons maybe not to do that but i have to admit it was so much fun to do it, it was really fun <laughs> and that gave something to the audience so i say really thank you so um yes it's, it's good to try to say yes it's really good 
So your, your Bach consort, uh, tell me about starting that. Why, why would you do that? Yes, uh, it's a good question. <laughs> um, when me and Agnes, my wife, um, were studying, we were playing a piano trio. And playing Shostakovich or playing Ravel was a lot of fun, and playing Brahms was a lot of fun, and playing Beethoven too. But the earlier we were playing, to play a Haydn trio with modern instruments felt, you know, with the cello doubling the left hand of the piano and the violin very often even doubling the, the, the right hand of the piano, like why would someone compose something like this? And when you start listening to period instruments, then there is a very clear why, because the, the piano at that time wasn't built like being self-sufficient. Yeah? And then uh, we played, I remember like the duets of the um, uh, Art of the Fugue by Bach. And once you try to do that on gut strings, eh, there is no way back because then the, the metal strings and the, the whole instrument, yes, um, they feel like so out of fashion <laughs> somehow. And then we said, okay, because we loved playing chamber music very much, let's do a quartet, but with Baroque instruments. I never thought of building an opera. At that time, I even thought that the best music happens always when there is no conductor around, because that had been my own experience. And we created first this quartet with a um, um, flute and violin. I was playing cello and then a harpsichord. And it's fun because the guy playing the harpsichord, Stefan Gottfried, is now the conductor of what used to be Harnon Kurz ensemble of Concentus Musicus. So we both continue players of the Bach Consort are now both conducting me, the Bach Consort, and he, this other ensemble. And this chamber music was really like the foundation of much of my knowledge about Baroque music. And sometimes we rehearsed like six months on a trio sonata, and everybody thought we were crazy. But we were, of course, not rehearsing the sonata. We were establishing what is our language. So th then there was a, a moment we were playing new programs every week because we had a, a common understanding of how. And as the Baroque repertoire is, and then you add another violin, so you ha can have trio sonatas of two violins, and then maybe a viola, and without noticing, we were playing orchestra repertoire in a chamber music version. And from there, then, sometimes you feel like, okay, but the balance is not good. If you want to have a big continuum group with one violin apart, isn't the best for this piece. And that was the uh, very organic growing of this Bach concert. Cool. Um, so what differences do you notice between like the European Baroque scene and, or even just the music scene and uh, what you see over here in America? Well, first of all, I notice uh, similarities, especially between the cities of Vienna and Chicago, because 
in Vienna we also have this big, big uh, orchestra, the Vienna Philharmonic, even if there are other really wonderful symphony orchestra, but this iconic institution that very much represents like the, the tradition and the reputation of classical music of the city. And from the other side, uh, in both uh, cities, I think there is a love for chamber music. In Vienna, very much. You have many chamber music series, and I sense this kind of uh, atmosphere also in Chicago, even if maybe the um, concert halls, the concert venues for chamber music in Vienna, they, they are like more um, really specially built for that purpose. In Chicago, it's more like about finding a, a good venue for chamber music or for baroque music. The venues in Vienna, because of this love to the chamber music, the moment the Musikverein was built or the Vienna Concert House were built, they created these really very adequate spaces. And then we have uh, in both cities, uh, baroque music is this freelancing thing with uh, groups coming and groups going away. And of course, um, Vienna has the somehow the advantage of having been the home of a guy like Nicolas Harnoncourt, who really was one of the, the revolutionary uh, musicians who reinvented that what we today we call this historically informed uh, musical practice. And um, in uh, Chicago, I think that um, we have um, actually excellent musicians, but not as many as a city like this, as one would assume uh, coming, coming from Europe. I was surprised like for how many instruments you are very soon at the end of the list and if a couple of guys are not available you, you really need to start <laughs> flying people in so i think that there is a, a lot of possibility for development here and i think i hope that we are doing also with our work with third coast baroque a good contribution to that for creating um, a valuable experience for musicians and to uh, to grow for the people who we are doing this, but also for colleagues to see that it is worth and it can be fun and it can be also like work uh, to, to help you pay your bills to, to specialize in this kind of music. Okay, do you have any, uh, do you have any hobbies? Hobbies? Oh, I am kind of an uh, audio sound systems nerd. I really love the stuff, like headphones and uh, you know speakers and all of that, and and DACs, digital analog converters, and all the things is something that I really enjoy very much. And even like recording and editing, uh, you know when you and do a CD with your group, I like very much to do the editing myself. Of course, while I'm doing that, usually I hate life because it is always like never enough time and other things that I should do. But I, 
as much as I live, uh, as, as I love um, live music, I know how much I enjoyed during all my life listening to recordings. And I think that recordings as um, yes, as a testimony of, of culture are so beautiful and recordings can give also so many emotions and it's such an intimate way of, of uh, listening to, to music, to listen to a good record of, I don't know, Oscar Peterson or, or who, whoever was playing those days. And I, what I don't do very much is uh, like listening to recordings of people that I could hear live because then the life experience is for me, of course, a complete other thing. But I like very much listening to recordings to, from people who are not around anymore. If it's, uh, I don't know, Fritz Kreisler or uh, of whom? Claudio Rao or Dino Lipatti or, you know, um, artists that were at, in the time they were living very important, very influential and since music is an art that transmits from one generation to the other just listening to it i think it's very important for me not to lose that connection and so many people have a like a favorite album and they listen to it over and over you know like until it doesn't even play anymore <laughs> the, yes the tape sounds bad or the record is all scratched yeah. What is your favorite recording? God, I don't know. I I definitely like to to rock out to some good eighties hair bands now. Mm. Yes. Now for me in this um, there are some South American folk musician actually. There is a recording by a Brazilian trio that I can hear uh, yes, 800 times with no problem but not because it's nice to hear it because I know it but because I still don't get what the hell are they doing and I really <laughs> want to understand <laughs> because it's super good super complex and at the same time um, you know, easy listening but if you really try to get if I say, okay, now I have to reproduce to play myself what they're playing no idea, I can repeat one bar and I get lost. And, you know, this, this is something that, uh, yes, it's always a marvel to see how some music is this uh, universal language, but then you hear people speak fluently in their own language, and yes, we became toddlers trying to understand and, and that. No? I mean, when you say language, I, it makes me think, about you know Luther and and Bach and you know people doing Bach in various languages and and just the impact of a text that you understand being musically presented to you yes how powerful it can be and you know just things don't have to be complicated like a simple melody with with words that that move you, you know, poetry. Yes. Um, I remember like being a teenager 
for me and for the people in my generation from in Argentina, um, like our door to poetry was one particular Cuban songwriter who had still has, I think, quite an ugly voice, even if, we, of course, we love him because it's just him, but he's not a singer. He's a very good guitar player, but the, the, his lyrics are so beautiful and so complex that this guy opened for me and really for a generation the door to poetry. And I think that if that poetry, instead of being a song, would have been written in a book or in a newspaper, I would have ignored it. So music has this power to make words come deeper to you, but it's, I agree that when you speak the language that is being spoken, it, it means so, so, so much more. I remember when I was studying in Germany, uh, of course, I arrived to Germany, I didn't speak one word, because actually I was going to Paris, and I had a scholarship to Paris, but then I have found this genius cello teacher I wanted to study with him in a little town in Germany called Detmold. Don't go there because you may not find the exit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was beautiful, but it is like what people tell about Bloomington, no? being a tiny little town, <laughs> but with this huge music university. So um, I remember I started very lazy and very slowly to to start learning German. And I remember the first day, by case, I realized that I could understand the words in Schubert songs, songs that I thought I knew. But uh, suddenly being able to follow the lyrics and say, oh, this is it. And it was, wow, I remember that day sitting in my bed in, <laughs> in, my, in my room in that world. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I I really only speak English and but I play all these operas in all these languages and you know the music's beautiful but I don't think it never makes me cry you know like a s sad English song that I understand hits me you know yes now it's very true and I think that that is for me one of the the beauties of my job that um, I like languages and I get but also the a reason to learn them because actually because of the music we play because I do a lot of Italian opera and do a, a bit of French opera and German Bach cantatas and that is uh, that is fun I don't do very much Spanish music I only do Argentinian folk song or South American folk song but even then the I think being able to understand the language, it opens a lot, um, like a different place in your mind um, when you want to, to understand people. I always enjoy very much trying to speak with people in their language. Now I'm, I'm very often in Portugal and I try to speak Portuguese, it's still not perfect, but it is so good I think to know those people speaking their language is really beautiful. Well, I have a lot more things that we could talk about, but I think maybe we should take a break and uh, and try to play some music. My drink is empty at this point. Um, so, 
I just want to say, you know, thanks for listening. Um, but actually, do you have anything coming up that you want to plug or talk about? Any cool projects? I think the coolest project I can think about is on June 7th, I will be back in Chicago. You know, I've been three years not being able to, to come here because of this beautiful pandemic situation that we have. <laughs> and uh, being, being here is so good. So on June 7th, I will be back and it will be a pleasure with you, Marty, but also with the other Third Coast Baroque friends to, to have really like a celebration concert with lots of music and also music that uh, should represent the different cultures of the different people playing in the ensemble and there will be some Argentinian stuff too. Sounds fun. Looking forward to that as well. Um, so if you're listening, please subscribe to the podcast and if you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a lot of stars and check out my new CD, Baroque and Alone, at bachfor2.com and buy lots of them. Um, we're going to take a little break and then play something. He's got a guitar and I have a violin and we'll see what happens. Be right back. So, I was before telling you about this Argentinian folk music and this is a piece which is really very interesting because the origins of it are a mixture of um, like Spanish music and music from the natives. We have, um, it is like modal, like a Doric mod, that's what they played on their uh, bagpipes, on their, on their palm flutes, but also African uh, rhythms under it. I see Marty trying to concentrate after all of this booze <laughs> of the happy hour. And yes, I, I hope you fail, so this is going to be a lot of fun. And the, the rhythm of it is called a chacarera. That is one of our standard rhythms. So, you start and I get in, and if you get lost, I'm going to laugh. <laughs> You're probably going to laugh. Anyway, all right. One, two, three. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.